I'm burnt and I'm a real alcoholic. <laughs> Sober today by God's grace and because the program of Alcoholics Anonymous works in my life a day at a time. And for this, I'm eternally grateful. I notice that everybody has given their sobriety days, and I'll give mine. I've been sober as long as I can remember. <laughs> I forgot I wasn't as tall as Ralph. <laughs> that day is December 25th of 1960. And... <laughs> I want to say something this morning that that I always say, you know, and, I, and I'm deeply grateful to Bill and Dr. Bob for founding the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. But if that would have been the only two, if that would have been the only two, we wouldn't be here this morning. We owe a deep debt of gratitude to the old-timers that have kept this play, this thing alive. <laughs> to the people like Geneva, who kept the doors open so that when this hopeless drunk got here, I could identify. They told me what was wrong with me, and they taught me how to live by example. And, you know, you don't hear a lot of this anymore. I hear, I heard some of the old-time speakers, and I was privileged to hear them. And they'd stand behind a podium like this and say, This program has given me, has restored dignity and pride in my life. And it's happened to me this morning, and it's happened to me over the years. Today I can stand here and I can walk with dignity and pride because I'm a member of the greatest organization in the world called Alcoholics Anonymous. And I thank those people for keeping the doors open for me when I got here. God bless you, Geneva. And all I can. I didn't want to be an alcoholic. I can tell you that. Had a reason not to want to be an alcoholic because my daddy was an alcoholic. And I didn't like what alcohol did to that man. It ruined his life. You know, I could see a good man and I could see him doing things that nobody approved of. And I said, I'll never drink. I'll never drink. But I got to tell you the kind of kid I was and the kind of family I had. You know, <laughs> I was raised in a flaky family. <laughs> it's about like a snowstorm all the time. You know, our life revolved around a practicing alcoholic. If he said do it, we done it. If he said not do it, we didn't do it. You know, if <clears throat> we would fix an evening meal and sit there and wait for him to come home. And if he didn't come home, we didn't eat. You know, we just sat there and didn't eat. You know, that's nuts. You know, they go, 
Sometimes they call them dysfunctional families. Back then they said we were crazy as hell. They were right back then. We'd, we'd sit there and wait for him to come home, and when he got there, we wished he hadn't come home. Never knew when he'd get there, if he'd get there, who he was going to bring with him, or what the situation would be. So we lived in a state of anxiety at my house at all times. And, you know, fear. I had an awful lot of fear. I, I, I had fear that people would know that my daddy was a drunk, but I also had the greatest fear I had was that people would find out about me. If people would find out about me that I wasn't what I presented to them. You know, I tried to make everybody like me, and I felt that nobody liked me at all. And I was afraid of that. And, you know, <clears throat> I was taught fear at an early age. My grandmother get everybody together, and she said, I need to talk to everybody, and we get everybody together. And she said, I've got a feeling something bad's going to happen. <laughs> Five years later, something would happen, and she said, I told you so. <laughs> an awful lot of fear in my life at an early age. A lot of frustrations in my life at an early age. My daddy was a tobacco man. He was a very capable man. He was capable of making a lot of money. But I told you he was an alcoholic, so he was more capable of spending it than he was making it. That's where some of my frustrations came in. I did not understand why I didn't have the things that other kids had. You know, for instance, they'd all have new bikes and I'd be riding a rusty one around, hating every minute of it. You know, and these this was just one example, but there was a continuation of these things. I didn't get these things, and it caused an awful lot of frustration uh, in my life. And this frustration led to resentment. And the resentment eventually led to hate. So I was like that. You know, I was a kid that never was satisfied with anything that I had. So I guess it was a blessing I didn't have a hell of a lot. I, I really would have been dissatisfied if I'd had a lot. You know, I wasn't satisfied with my looks. I wasn't satisfied with my friends. I wasn't satisfied with my position in, in life. I wasn't satisfied with anything. And so... A lot of frustrations early in my life. I had another, and this is going to be hard for you to believe, I know. But I was a liar. <laughs> I didn't start lying after I started drinking. I started lying right after I started talking. <laughs> I became real good at it. One, a lie to make me look better, or you look worse, or whatever the occasion called for. I had a lie for that situation, and I practiced it. I became real good at it, and when I started drinking, I became a professional liar. So this is the kind of kid I was. I'm wandering around for 15 years, not knowing where I belonged. You know, I could see you, and you look good on the outside, and I compared my insides with your outsides, and when I compared that, it, I didn't I didn't match up to. And I said, I'm not as good as. But I still, my lying made me present to you somebody that you would like.
And so this is how I was for 15 years. And I was at a party one night with some kids my age. And, and I looked around at several tables in the room. You know, they were dancing and everybody was having a good time except me. I, and I said I wasn't going to have a good time when I went. Usually when you say that, you don't have a good time. I looked around on those tables, and there were bottles sitting on every one of them. I made sure there weren't liquor bottles, because I hated liquor with a passion. I looked at those bottles, and every one of them said wine, W-I-N-E. I checked them out. I looked at the people. I always compared me with somebody else. They were all having a good time, and I, and I wasn't. And I said, my oh God, this is what kids do to have a good time. They drink a little wine and have a good time. I said... And I'm not opposed to that hard liquor is what ruined my daddy. That's what ruined my daddy, and, and I wouldn't take a drink of liquor for nothing, but I looked at that wine, I poured out a glass of it. I'd like that, drank it right on down. Before the bottle went around to everybody else, I had another glass. <laughs> and when that second glass went down, things started happening in my life. I'll tell you that, things started happening. You know, that warm glow, it just goes all over you. You know, if you ain't never had it, you won't never have it. You know, I probably, if you've had it, you know what I'm talking about. This spreads down to your fingers and your toes and your mouth. You know, it's sort of like swallowing an umbrella and having it open up on the inside of you. I stepped out of the background. Anxiety? Oh, no. Mm -mm. Fear? Hell no. <laughs> Frustration? No. Frustration? There was I feeling better than I'd ever felt in my life. But there was one thing wrong. I wasn't satisfied. I wasn't satisfied with feeling good. I wanted to feel just a little bit better. I reckon that's why y'all are here too, ain't it? Just won't satisfied with feeling good. I'd feel just a little bit better. And so I <clears throat> I put my mathematical mind into action. It borders on genius, by the way. <laughs> I said that two drinks will make me feel this good four will make me feel twice as good. And so I tried four. But somewhere between two and four I got in trouble. I know that's hard to do, but I've done it. You know, I blacked out. All the classic symptoms of alcoholism were there. The very first times that I drank, listen to this. There was not enough people in this room to have poured alcohol in me 30 minutes before I took that drink. But I took it on my own, swearing that I'd never do it. And I had a blackout that night. I'd run around doing cute things, you know, and people... You know, people tell you about these cute things, you know, when you first start out and you, and you say, yeah, nothing to it, you know. You... <laughs> Ten years later, they told me what happened to Black Cat. I said, the hell you say? <laughs> Could not believe it. I had a Black Cat that night. I passed out that night. I reckon that's what you do. Didn't go to sleep. I just passed out. Did everything except get a DWI. And I won't drive in then. Came to the next morning. And thought I was going to die. 
sick as I'd ever been in my life. I said, oh, my God, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I laid there for a few minutes and didn't die. And, and my mind went back. My mind went back to the night before when I had those two glasses of wine. When I had those two glasses of wine, and I started, I was laying there on my deathbed. Figuring out how I could drink the next time and not be that sick. Back then, you didn't call Mama. And if I'd been sick from something else, I'd have called Mama. Yeah, but you didn't call Mama back then and said, Mama, I got drunk last night. Can you help me out? I would have been dead if I'd have told Mama that. <laughs> guarantee you. You don't call your friends. And said, you know, I drank something last night that almost killed me. And I can't wait to drink some more. <laughs> you don't do that. That's too dumb. So you just lay there and figure out things for yourself. That's another reason we're all here, ain't it? <laughs> I knew early in my drinking career I wasn't drinking like everybody else. I'd get together with my buddies, and we'd be drinking beer or whatever you was drinking, and they said, I've got to go home. I'm beginning to feel this. Now, that's about the wimpiest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> go home when you're feeling fairly good. No, no, I go to town. I had to go to town when I was feeling pretty good, and, and you know, when you go to town feeling pretty good and then feel better, usually you get in trouble. That's what I started doing. Didn't mean to get in trouble. Didn't mean it at all. But that's the trouble with trouble. It always starts out as fun. <laughs> I ain't never met anybody in my life said, man, I'm going out and getting some trouble tonight. <laughs> never happened. But I was getting in trouble and they weren't. And so I started my old comparison again. I compared me with them. I said, by God, why is it? I said, I've got a better job than they have. You know, I've got a nicer home than they have. I'm a hell of a lot smarter than they are. Why is it they can drink and go home and I can't? And I looked at them and they were all married. They had families. They had responsibilities. And I said, by God, that's what's wrong with you. You don't have any responsibilities. You're nothing but a playboy. That's all you are. You need some responsibilities, and you devote less time to drinking, more time to your responsibilities, and you could live a well-balanced life. If I stand at the Civitan Club, you say, mm-hmm, ain't a damn soul here. Shut their head. Because you know. <laughs> you know that that won't my problem, but I thought it was an answer to my problem. And, you know, I said, I'm going to have me some responsibilities long back then. If, you, if you're going to have a family that's real popular if you got married. Real popular. <laughs> so I met this girl, and we were going to get married, and I was going to get me some responsibilities and live happy ever after. Went to our family doctor. I told him, I said, we're going to get a blood test. 
Don't ever get one of them either. This I'll tell you about them. I said, we're going to get a blood test. We're going to get married. He said, have a seat. I'll be with you in ten minutes. In ten minutes, he was there. But he wasn't talking about a blood test. He was talking about alcoholism. Hell, he'd been to Rutgers or Yale or somewhere all summer. And he knew everything that was to be known about alcoholism. And he told me more than I wanted to hear. <laughs> Just on and on and on. Then he told me how much he respected my family. Now, I didn't want to hear that. They hadn't done that for me in a pretty good while. <laughs> then he told me about a place on the outskirts of town where he treated alcoholics. I said, what the hell has this got to do with a blood test? <laughs> then he finally got around to telling me what he wanted. You know, they'll beat around the bush when they're talking to you about your drinking. Well, the they just come out and say, you're drinking too much. But he said, I've observed your drinking habits and pattern over the past few months. And he said, I'm of the opinion that you've got a drinking problem. I'm of the opinion that you're an alcoholic. You're a young man. You're a young man, and if you can stop drinking now, you've got a lot of years ahead of you. But if you don't stop now, I can't promise you anything. Well, hell, I hadn't asked him to promise me anything. <laughs> Finally, you just have to tell him. I said, if you'll just give me that paper that I came in here for, I'll be on my way, and if I ever need you, I'll call you. Real smart-like. So we got married, and I did real good there for four or five months. <clears throat> real good. Didn't drink nothing but beer. <laughs> Awful lot of it. <laughs> That's the hardest work I've ever done in my life. Some people, it does it for some people, but it didn't. It was hard work for me. You have to get up early in the morning and start popping in cans as hard as you can, drinking as hard as you can, to get a buzz on by noon. And by the time you start feeling pretty good, you sit down tired and go into the bathroom and opening them cans, you can't enjoy it. It was just, it was an awful lot of work. Huh? You know, I met a guy in Texas. He was at my state convention, and, and he talked. They drunk 15 years on beer. I never felt as sorry for anybody <laughs> in my life. I just got tired listening. You know, it's a good story, but I got tired listening about that beer because I remembered it. You know, I said, he's, I felt sorry for him. I said, you poor thing. He ain't never been in the fast lane in his life. But finally, I made the big decision. I said, I've got to have something that'll get on down there and get it early in the morning. You know, get that feeling early in the morning. Get drunk early in the morning. I don't know why I had to do that. Where the hell out of everybody, I guess. I, I was doing that better than anything else in those days. So I got back on the hard stuff, drinking around the clock, living to drink, drinking to live, doing all the things that alcoholics do, lying, stealing, cheating. And the word got around. <clears throat> People will not quit minding your business. <laughs> Everywhere I went, they were talking about my drinking. You know, and I thought it was my business. You know, I, you wake up in the morning, 5.30, 6 o'clock, 
out there in your front yard. <laughs> Five or six people standing around looking at you. In my yard. They wouldn't leave me alone, and he got a, the word got around so much they, they heard about it at work. And they called me in. They said I needed to quit drinking. That it was interfering with my job. Well, I knew that I had to quit something. <laughs> Never occurred to me to quit drinking from the time I took the first two glasses of wine till the day I came back to Alcoholics Anonymous. Never occurred to me. I didn't think that was an option. I thought it was an answer to my problem. I couldn't function without it, and I was functioning without you know, a few bad circumstances there, you know, <laughs> jails and everything. But I just couldn't function without it. And so here they are telling me i got to quit. And I quit, and I quit my job. You had to quit something, so I... I quit my job and went home and told my wife about it. <laughs> she got mad, started, you know, that yapping. So I, I got out, packed my stuff, and left. <laughs> went to where all grown men go. Mamas. I told my mother what had happened. And she said, well, son, why don't you quit? And I got mad with her and left. <laughs> Went to get another drink. And the guy wouldn't sell me one. He said, you're in bad shape. I'm not going to sell you anymore. And I got mad with him and left. And I said, well, by God, it looks like I'm going to have to do something you know, it's Monday, that's a good day to quit. Looked like I wasn't going to get a drink, that's a good reason to quit. But I didn't have no experience of quitting. Not a one bit of experience of quitting. I knew what to do. You know, you get a little nervous, you pour you out a glass, that slip, throw it on down, you steady as a rock. But I couldn't do that today because I'd quit. I went in a public restroom. The guy I ain't never laid eyes on in my life. Said, man, you need to get off of that booze. You're in bad shape. I said, well, hell, I've quit. <laughs> Getting late in the day, and I decided maybe I'd better go back home. You know, I wasn't all that mad with my wife. So I went back home, and I wasn't shaking anymore. When she got home from work, I was vibrating. <laughs> I said, call that doctor. She said, I ain't calling that doctor. I said, just dial the phone for me. I can't get my finger in that hole. And I apologized to the doctor. God, I hated that. I asked if he'd come over right away. And he took his own good time getting there. And he came over and he gave me a couple of shots right there. And the next morning he came out and by and picked me up and carried me out to his funny farm to dry out. My first experience of drying out. And I... It fascinated me. There was about 12 old men out there. Hell, they'd been to every detox place on the East Coast, 10 times a piece. They fascinated me. You know, they knew something about everything. Everything. They knew something. 
They had an answer for any question. Might not have been right, but they had an answer for it. And I paid close attention to everything they said and stayed drunk six more years. I listened to them. They said, hell, they were all old as dirt. But they said, you are too smart to be an alcoholic. You don't have any brain damage. I said, I know that. They said, you're too young to be an alcoholic. I said, I know that too. And they said, you just had some bad, unfortunate things to happen to you. And so they told me what to do. You know, a good doctor don't tell you what to do unless he prescribes a little medicine for you. So they told me what to do, and this is my drugstore. You have to listen close. Don't last long. They told me about some of these pet pills that you could get that would puck you up during the day. Didn't smell them. You couldn't smell them. They said, take those pills during the day, and if you want to drink or two at night, that's your business. And that sounded good to somebody who didn't want to quit. So I went to the truck stop and got me a quart jar of those pills. <laughs> Drugstore gives you bottles this tall. So I started taking those pills during the day, drinking a little bit at night, and it worked out real good there for two or three days. <laughs> then I got my days and nights mixed up. Got my job and my home mixed up. Got my wife and some other woman mixed up. I don't remember a whole lot about it. Just lasted a long time. So I had a bad habit not coming home. I don't think anybody here ever had that habit. Sometime I'd stay gone two months. Never got five miles from my house. Have I got that's hard to do? I don't believe I could do that now. But they got word about me, and they sent a deputy out, and they sent me over to the state asylum. Can you believe that, Mama's little boy? And in that house, non-alcoholic, non-alcoholic. I was in a straitjacket, but I'm not an alcoholic. There has definitely got to be something wrong where you'd be in a straitjacket. I ain't never seen a normal person in my life in a straitjacket. But they put Mama's little boy in there five days. Most humiliating thing that ever happened to me. You know, they'd walk by and look at you, not say a word. Not say a word. They'd walk by again and look at you, not say nothing. And I said, this is humiliating. Finally, I said something that made some sense. And they took the jacket off of me. I know now why they don't say anything to you, because nothing that you say makes any sense. No need to try to carry on a dialogue with somebody in a straitjacket. <laughs> finally, finally I got out, and I went home. Something bad had happened at my house. My wife had heard about Alcoholics Anonymous. I had too. They had meetings there every Wednesday night at that asylum for the old men. You know, those that was. And 
alcoholic. And since I was non-alcoholic, they had a poker game going for cigarettes. And I figured they needed me in the poker game worse than they did in the AA meetings. And I said, I believe I'll go to the poker game. But I'd heard about Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I got home, she said, why are you over there? You know, they never give you, give you the names of those damn places. They're ashamed of them. That's why I am. Go ahead, Betty Ford, and they said, while you were out there, she said, while you were over there, I heard about Alcoholics Anonymous. I said, well, I did too. She said, well, I want you to go or go. I understood that. I said, well, I was planning on going. She said, good, they'll be here in ten minutes. It was the time set up, that's what it was. I know now what it was. But two men walked in my front room, and I knew one of them. I knew one of them. He was a bad drunk. I knew I couldn't quit drinking. You know, I knew that. Absolutely without any doubt. I couldn't quit drinking. And they send old Ham in there. He's a worse drunk than I ever was. He's the kind of drunk that had his face stayed blood red all the time, and he, where he puked so much, I guess he had those blue veins running through his face, broken veins. And he had yellow eyes with red streaks running through them. And they sent him to see me. Well, he walks in my in my living room and he's got on a new suit. He ain't red, sort of pink. No lines running through his face at all. He got eyes. They're blue. No streaks running through them. Either. And I looked at him, I said, by God, he's learned how to drink and not be sick. I'll go anywhere with him. And I pushed him on out the door. I said, let's go. And I went to my first AA meeting. And the first thing that I said was, I want to learn how to drink and not be sick. And they said, shut up, boy. I didn't think it was very nice. Yeah. They said, shut up, boy. They've told me that a lot since then. <laughs> I think that's something that we don't say enough of in Alcoholics Anonymous. <laughs> Let somebody that's been sober 45 minutes dominate a meeting, and you got a room full of people there that might be looking for a way to live. But then we have so many damn do-gooders and alcoholics said, let him vent. <laughs> let him, by God, let him shut up. <laughs> I didn't think it was very nice. Not, I didn't think they could help me with my drinking problem either because they all quit. Hell, didn't nobody there drink. They were hell-bent on not drinking. That's all they talked about. You know, the guy got a 90-day token there. I said, you can't stay sober 90 days. Anybody knows that. Another guy said he hoped he stayed sober the rest of his life, a day at the time. I said, the rest of your life? I'm 25. Suppose I live to be 85. 60 years with not a drop. I almost threw up on that one now, I'll tell you that. 
So I got hooked up with three old men. I believe they quit their jobs. That hell, all they did was go to meetings. That's all they did was go to meetings. And when you got through eating at night, there was no need to look out the window to see if they were there, because they were there. <laughs> they were there. And I kept going. I said, don't y'all do anything besides this? They said, we go to meetings. said, we drunk every night. said, might as well go to meetings every night. said, <clears throat> so I kept going and going. Didn't like it at all. Didn't want to quit drinking. But I remember what she said. She said, I want you to go or go. So I just kept going for three months. If my God had ruined my drinking, it's what it done. If you hear tonight, if you hear this morning and you think you can go back out and drink, hey, you're wrong. All the good times is gone. <laughs> They're gone. I finally said, i got to get away from these people. They were running me crazy. i got to do some things on my own. So I got away from them, and I started doing the things that I wanted to do. And I want to tell you something. You don't get anything outside of what I say. Listen to this. Never underestimate the power of alcohol. It's the most powerful force that I've ever dealt with in my life. And I went back out to do things my way. <laughs> and things went to hell in a handbasket. I could not get those old men off of my mind. My God, they wouldn't leave. They just wouldn't leave, and I never enjoyed a drink. But alcohol, I, you know, I was raised with some principles in my life. And I found myself one day violating a principle, the principle of honesty. And I said, and don't tell me you don't know when you do it. Don't tell me you don't know when to do it, because by God, you know when you do it. Because the little buzz that goes off right here, and you start a flush, and you say, what did I do that for? What did you do that for, dummy? And it bothered me. But the next time, it didn't bother me quite as bad. And the next time, it bothered me even less. And soon I got to where it didn't bother me at all. And when it doesn't bother you at all, my friends, you have no principles to live by. And when you have no principles to live by, you have very little to live for. And that's the position that I found myself in. I found myself frequented places that ordinarily wouldn't frequent. And I said, what are you doing in this dive? You know, I couldn't answer that question, but I was back the next night and the next, and that became a hangout of mine. But I couldn't tell you why I was there from the beginning. I know now why I was there. I was hanging around with people that I ordinarily wouldn't associate with. And I said, what are you doing with this bunch of yo-yos? I don't know. But I was back with them the next night and the next, and they became friends of mine. But I didn't want anything to do with them from the beginning. This is the power of alcohol. This is the power of alcohol. I had accumulated some things, <clears throat> and, you know, I had a little business. And I had a family. And I had a nice home. And I had some respect 
in my community, and I lost all of those things. I lost all of those things, and I found myself in December of 1960 on the streets of my hometown of Durham, North Carolina. That's where I lived then. I was panhandling on the streets for another drink. God, that's an awful way to live. I'm not proud of that. I am not proud of that, but if that's what it took to bring me to Alcoholics Anonymous, then I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of it. And every day I walk those streets as sick as I was, the faces of those people from Alcoholics Anonymous, I couldn't get rid of them. I couldn't get rid of them. And I woke one day, and I was sicker than I'd ever been in my life. And I had a pint of 100 proof. I don't know where I got it. Probably stolen. Doesn't matter. All I knew is I said, i got to get rid of this feeling. And I drank that pint of 100 proof, and nothing would go away. Everything was just as vivid in front of my eyes as if I were looking at Mike there now. And, and the folks on the front row, they would, it would not go away. And I did exactly what you did. When alcohol wasn't doing the job for you anymore, I panicked. I panicked. And I knew I'd lost my only friend that I had in the world. And then what did I do? I did exactly like you did. I said, God, help me. God, help me. You know, I'd bargained with God before. You do this for me, and I'll do that for you. It's something like a real estate transaction, you know. But I didn't have any bargaining power this day. I didn't have any bargaining power, and I said, God, if you'll give me one more chance, if you'll give me one more chance, I'll do what you want me to do. You know, that was Christmas Day of 1960. And by His grace, I haven't had a drink since then. I went to a treatment place. The deputies came after me again Christmas Day. They don't let up, you know. They had papers for me to go to the asylum again, and one of the deputies I'd gone to school with. And he said, Brian, I've got a brother that's up at this place, and he's doing so good. And if you want to go up there, I'll take you and pretend that I couldn't find you. And so I went there, the non-medical facility, and I experienced all the DTs and seizures. I experienced all the withdrawal symptoms of alcohol that you can imagine while I was there for 12 days. I don't remember an awful lot. I remember the guys bringing me some orange juice and honey. I remember them sitting on me to keep me from shaking the place down. I remember them catching me when I tried to run away. That's all I remember for 12 days. But after 12 days, after 12 days I came to, and I had a clear thought. My mind didn't go back to those two glasses of wine. The euphoric recall had left me, and my mind went back. You see, God's miracle started Christmas Day. It started Christmas Day when I asked for it, and it continued that day. When I woke up, I remembered how sick I was, and I said, God, I don't ever want to be that sick again. 
And the next thing I remembered were the people in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I said, if I live, I'm going back to those people. You know, ever since then, there's been a lot of days since then, but there's never a day in my life when a fun awakening that I don't have those first two thoughts. How sick I was the last time I drank and where my help come from. And God help me if I ever forget either one of them. I went to Alcoholics Anonymous. I didn't have anything. They gave me a suit at that place. You know, it was 20 years out of style. Lapel that wide. Tie wider than that. I was in bad shape. They called me breath and britches when I got there, Mike. <laughs> Had no recall. Some of my wires were burned out. It had to be replaced. But I went to Alcoholics Anonymous in that suit, and I walked in the door. And you didn't ask me where I got that suit. You didn't say, hey, nice thread, where'd you get that? You didn't ask me where I worked. You didn't ask me if I had any money. Hell, you didn't even ask me my name. Back then, you had to have an honest desire to stop drinking. And they questioned that. And I said, I don't know where I'm be, honest or not. But from the bottom of my heart, I want to stay sober. And this old man told me, he said, son, I'm going to give you the recipe for honesty. He said, if it ain't so, don't say it. If it ain't yours, don't take it. And if it ain't right, don't do it. He said, it's all you need to know. I've never had, I've never had to attend any seminars on honesty. Never had to read any books on honesty. But I had an honest desire. And I still have that desire today. Hell, it's stronger than it was then. It's stronger than I didn't have nothing to lose back then. I had nothing to lose today. I have an awful lot to lose. Today I have an awful lot to lose. And I take care of that desire every day. And I build to it. Every day, I, every time I meet some new friends, I have a stronger desire to stay with them and to be with them I went in there, and I didn't know all that much. I had, Like I said, I didn't have any recall. But I knew this much. I knew that I was an alcoholic. I knew that you were an alcoholic because I heard you talk, and you talked about some of the, the things that you did. I thought I was crazy. And I said, I'm not crazy. I'm like these people. And I identified. God, I don't want to come in now. Yeah, I don't want to identify again. Because, you know, all this snorting and everything that's going on now, the things that people do, hell, I wouldn't identify with that. But I identified with drunk. Never fail to let them identify with you. And so I identified. I knew you were staying sober. And I knew that things could get better for me because they had for you. There were some role models and some examples in that group, and I followed them, and I thank God for them today. So I knew that I was an alcoholic. I knew you was an alcoholic. I knew where the meetings were. Knew where the meetings were. 
I knew what night they met on, and I knew I wanted to stay sober, and I don't think you need to know a hell of a lot more than that when you come to Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, we got some of these 28-day wonders now that come in to Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't have anything wrong with a 28-day program. I've been operating one for 30 years. I have nothing wrong with the program. I have something wrong with the information that they give the people while they're involved in the program. One came to my group one night, and he said, I've just had 28 days treatment at this place, and my counselor, God, I hate that too, my counselor told me that I had the equivalent of one year in alcoholic phenomenon. And when I said what I said when I came back through the when I came back through the ceiling, that's what I told him. And then I told him how we did it in Alcoholics Anonymous. We do it one day at a time. You've got 28 days. You got more, one more than somebody with 27, and one less than somebody with 29. So I didn't know all that much when I came in, but but I knew that there was a solution here. And I know that there's still a solution here. And I met my sponsor. The group assigned him to me. God, that's a hard way to get one. That's a hard way. He was everything I didn't want to be. He was loud. He was profane. He had absolutely no tact at all. But he'd been sober as long as God. And I couldn't, I couldn't doubt that. And we were standing behind the podium. I was leaning on one side and he was leaning on another. He said, I don't like this any better than you do, but they've asked me to be your sponsor. And all I could say was, oh. And he said, I'm not in this to be your friend. I'm not in this to win your friendship. I'm in it to help you save your butt. And if we save your butt, then we can become friends. He said, I am your spiritual advisor. I am your advisor, period. And if you need to know anything, you ask me. Don't ask some of these yo-yos over here. I told somebody, I said, he's my sponsor. I said, I hate him. They said, everybody hates him. Just do what he says. And I did what he said. I whined around there for a while, you know. I said, I want to get my wife back. He said, the damn book, don't say that. That was his words. He didn't say the book. He said, the damn book, don't say that. And I read the book. And it says, wife or no wife. And so, if I came there to get my wife back, bad news. She ain't back yet. I don't believe she's coming back, Larry. But he also gave me an answer. He said, you'll get another one. And I did. He went with us to get married just to see that his prophecy would be fulfilled. <laughs> She's in Alcoholics Anonymous. She'll have 35 years sobriety in July. But it didn't get my wife back. Didn't get what I wanted. I wanted a big job. I needed to make this much money because I owed this much. 
You know, you need to have a little extra. Everybody does. And I didn't get that big job. I got a job as a butcher working at a place that I'd owned at one time. That'll do something for your ego. I was making a third of what I was accustomed to making. They never did pay too good that. But, <laughs> but you see, I wasn't a big shot anymore. I wasn't a big shot anymore. And my money was counting. You know, I didn't. I got rid of that brand suit. Got me a new one. Got a place to stay. I was paying my rent. That's better than I'd been doing. You know, I was sending money back to my little girl like the judge told me to. That's better than I've been doing. In some weeks, I'd have a little something left over. And so I didn't get what I wanted there. But I got what I needed. I got what I needed, and I worked the steps of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I told my sponsor, I said, I worked these steps to the best of my ability. And he said, your ability has increased somewhat from when I first met you. And he said, now let's start working the steps over again and see if we can't do just a little bit better. And I started them again and again. I don't know which cycle I'm on now, and I ain't going to quit, because if I do, he's coming back. <laughs> and you don't want that. You don't want that. The man saved my life. He saved my life. He wouldn't let me do things my way. He helped me with the steps. He walked me through that. He told me what my character defects were. And he said, if you want to live with a character the same as you did when he was drinking, get you another sponsor. But if you want to change, I'll help you. And he helped me make amends. And I had a list. And he said, we're going to this man first. It's the man I stole some money from. I said, he don't know anything about that. He said, yeah, but you do. You do. And so I said, I don't have all the money. He said, we'll take him half of it. And we took him half of it. And the guy said, you don't owe me any money. I said, take the money. I'll be back and explain to you later. <laughs> I went back. And I explained to him later. I did exactly what my sponsor told me to do. I said, this money is rightfully yours. I took it. And if I owe you any interest, I said, I'm... I'm trying to live a program that requires me to be honest. And I said, if I owe you any interest, I'll be glad to pay that too. And he said, I ain't never heard anything like that. I said, me either. <laughs> I'm totally different from anything I was offering. <laughs> but here's the kicker. Years later, my, my daughter called me and she needed some money. They were buying a house. They found a house that she wanted and she needed some money right away. And I said, honey, I don't know if I can get down there tomorrow or not. And I talked with a man. And guess who it was? The man that I'd stolen the money from. And he said, honey, I'd rather have your daddy's word than most people's money. You can get it. You can have the house. The house is yours. My sponsor carried me to a judge carried me to a judge that had sentenced me to six months on the Chan Gang. And he said, you owe that man an amends. And I said, amends? Hell, I've served six months. He said, it's a different ball game. And there was. This man had known me since I was a little boy. 
He had sponsored me in the YMCA when I was a kid. He'd introduced me to my wife. He'd helped me go into business. And I started coming before him. And he started dismissing some charges and null processing some charges against me. And finally they were too numerous for him to do anything about. And I stood before him and he gave me an active sentence. And I kept waiting for him to say suspended. But that wasn't in his vocabulary. He ain't said it yet. And so I go off. Mama's boy goes off to the change. And here my sponsor's telling me I need to make him. He said, you took advantage of that man's friendship. And you need to make him in. And he told me what to say. And I went in. And I told him what to say. What he told me. I said, Your Honor, I won't take but a minute of your time. I said, I just wanted you to know that you did what you had to do. And I don't have any hard feelings. And I'd like for you to forgive me for taking advantage of our friendship. The old man started crying. And when he started crying, I started crying. And I knew I'd meant what I said when I started crying. And that old man became a friend of Alcoholics Anonymous. He liked to cause me to lose my job because he called me down there all hours of the day. I was supposed to be working. If any drunk come in there and there was plenty of them, he said, if you want to stay sober, go with this man here. He's in your custody. Some of those guys died with 25, 30 years of sobriety because of that man. And it's because I worked the steps according to how my sponsor told me to. You know, so many things have happened. My daddy, I held a resentment towards my daddy for a long, long time, and he said, pray for him. And I prayed for him. It wasn't much. I said, God bless him. And then I could say, God bless him, and mean it. And then I could say, God bless him, and forgive him. I've forgiven him, and I hope he's forgiven me. And one day I realized that I didn't have any problem with my daddy. I knew everything was all right. My daddy died 29 years ago, and he was down in South Carolina. And my wife and my sister and I went down to the funeral. And an hour before the funeral, they allowed us to go in and see him. And instead of the traditional handkerchief in his pocket, he had a serenity prayer pen in his pocket, and he'd been sober 90 days when he died. <clears throat> you know, that was an emotional time for me, but suppose I'd have walked in there, Mr. A.A., full of resentment towards him, and see that you gave him the same opportunity that you did me, I don't believe I could have lived with that. I don't believe that I could have lived with that. But it took that. And I knew that everything was all right. And on the way home, my sister asked a lot of questions. She asked a lot of questions, and the book tells me that freely it's been given to me, freely speak of it. And we talked to her about Alcoholics Anonymous and the fellowship. And a few years later, my sister called me. And she said, I've got the same problem that you have, and I want to be like you. She lived in Orlando, Florida, and I said, I'll have somebody there in a few minutes. 
And in 30 minutes, somebody was asked, she never did understand that. <laughs> and she came to Alcoholics Anonymous and she stayed sober for about five years. And she went through a bitter divorce. And it, it took a toll on her. And she had an awful lot of money dumped in her lap. And she went back out. And she stayed for years and years and years until the money was gone. And then she almost died, and she came down back to Alcoholics Anonymous. She had brain damage like a brother. She was on a walker. And you didn't ask her a name. You asked her if she wanted to stay sober. You took her. She became employable. She became a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. Worked with a lot of girls. And two years ago, she went home and died. And I want to thank you for what you did for my sister. I want to thank you for what you did for me, for my wife, for my family, and for everyone else. I'll always be grateful. I'll always be grateful. It's given me a new and different life by God's grace. And it's up to me to keep this going the way that it's the Geneva. In the old timers, it's up to me. And it's up to you to keep it the way it was. Because by God, the way it was, it works. I don't know whether some of it works today or not. But it works. And it's up to you. You know, if you don't keep it like it was, my sponsor's liable to come back, too. <laughs> and you've got to go through all that again. But just think, we're the most fortunate people in the world to have lived the life that we've lived. And then come into rooms like this and people said, we love you. And we'll help you. And we'll do the things that are right. Don't give them the bad advice. Don't say AA is like a cafeteria line. Take what you want and leave the rest. Don't say that. Don't say there are no must in Alcoholics Anonymous because there are some must in Alcoholics Anonymous. Don't live on the cliches that you hear. The things that sound good. The one that got up early this morning has been sober the longest. The hell with that. <laughs> you had a slip three weeks ago, and you got up at 4 o'clock this morning. You sure as hell ain't been sober as long as I have, I'll tell you that. <laughs> Fake it till you make it, is what they some of them say. Well, we're the greatest fakers in the world. The greatest fakers in the world. My book tells me the message that will hold an alcoholic has to have depth and truth and meaning. And we know the depth and the truth and the meaning of alcoholism, and we know a solution. And it's your job and mine to give that new guy and gal that comes in the door the very best, because by God we were given the best, and we owe it to them. You know, I've been given a new life. 
I've been given a new life. Three and a half years ago, the doctors told me that I'd never talk again. I said, you don't know all that, then. You know, had throat cancer. And so I didn't know if I was going to talk again. And, you know, when they tell you got cancer, you go, oh, God, I'm going to die. You know, I went home and I started praying for myself. I said, wait a minute. This ain't right. The book says that I don't pray for anything for myself. And I prayed that I could accept what was wrong with me. I prayed that I could accept my illness, and I did. And then I found that there were people all over the world who were praying for me. And it's been a little over three years now. No recurrence. So, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close with this. I've been talking long enough. I'm getting hoarse. But I've been talking long enough that i got something I want to say. You know, God let me run my race. And I fell many, many times. I fell many times, and every time I fell, He picked me up. And the last time that I fell, I felt almost unworthy of asking for another chance almost felt unworthy of asking for another chance. But I remembered what he'd done for me. And, and you know, I try to do the same thing in my life. I try to be as kind as he was to me. I try to be as merciful as he was to me. I try to be as forgiving as he was. You know, all of the traits that he has that we know about, his grace, in His mercy, I try to have these things, but I fall short. I fall short an awful lot. Some days I'm more compassionate than others, and then some days I've got a short fuse. Those days, those days when I, when I have those bad days and I, I'm not as compassionate, I remember Him. And I remember He's my role model. And I want to be like him. And I remember his grace and his mercy and his compassion. And I ask for his forgiveness. But I also remember how he treated me that last time when I felt I was unworthy. He treated me like he did the prodigal son. The story in the Bible. He came to meet me. And he put his arm around me and he said he loved me. And he gave me a magnificent gift. He gave me an opportunity to be a member of this blessed fellowship called Alcoholics Anonymous. God bless you.